I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is Episode 8. So with the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak in 2020, in the U.S., we saw how scientists who had the expertise to know what was going on were muzzled and thwarted by politicians. As a result, the response to the pandemic in the U.S. could have been much better, and there was the potential that more than half a million people in the U.S. would not have died. And just as a quick sidebar, If you want a book suggestion for how those with expertise were hindered and hobbled from not only doing their jobs, but helping save lives in a crisis situation, check out the book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story by author Michael Lewis. But back to our main topic for today's episode. In a democracy, I think the role of scientists and technologists, in part, is to provide a check against those in power from making nonsense claims like injecting bleach is the right way to cure a virus. How the pandemic was handled in the U.S. highlights the need for better understanding around the role scientists and technologists have in society, especially regarding expertise and contributing to science and technology policy. So in today's episode, I thought it would be useful to get a better understanding of just what we mean by expertise and what voices matter when discussing science and technology. This understanding is relevant not only to pandemics, but other important issues in the world today, such as climate change and our beloved theme for these deep dive podcast episodes, AI and automation. To gain this understanding, in today's episode, we'll dive into the book Rethinking Expertise by Harry Collins and Robert Evans. Okay, so let's dive in. If you consider the current controversy over disinformation campaigns running on some social media platforms and television broadcast shows, knowing whom to believe can be tricky to get right. After all, there are many people who believe any message, even disinformation, if it appears on their Facebook news feed. And even more believe disinformation they watch, say on Fox News. After all, the name of the television show has news in the title. The power and authority people seem so willing to invest in that word, news, reminds me From years ago, when growing up, I remember the adults in my life, in fact, society in general back then, automatically seemed to invest similar power and authority to anyone, such as a medical doctor wearing a white lab coat. Television commercials would trot out actors wearing white lab coats, and viewers of those commercials would often immediately give weight and credence to the effectiveness of the medicine, treatment, or grapefruit diet being advertised just because of the perceived authority of the white lab coat. Back then, there seemed almost an overconfidence in science and technology messaging, what might be referred to as scientism. Today, the pendulum seems to have swung too far in the opposite direction, in favor of the everyman 
having more knowledge, wisdom, and authority than science and technology experts. Just what we mean by expertise and the role of expertise in the conduct and evaluation of science and technology is the focus of the book, Rethinking Expertise by Harry Collins and Robert Evans. Harry is a distinguished research professor of social sciences at Cardiff University in Wales, and in 2012, he was elected a fellow of the British Academy. In his research, he has focused in particular on how scientists come to know and say the results are correct. And for over 30 years, he has researched and written about the science findings and disputes regarding gravitational waves. In recent years, he has focused not so much on science, but on science's role in society. Robert is also a professor in the School of Social Sciences at Cardiff University, and his particular research interest is in developing the third wave of science studies, which is also known as studies of expertise and experience. The premise of the book is that expertise, how we know what we are talking about, is real, though varies in different people and by topic. Someone who is an apprentice to a master carpenter for many years presumably has more expertise in woodworking than someone who just watches one YouTube video, for example. Similarly, someone who got their PhD in virology presumably has more expertise regarding viruses than your Uncle Jimmy who saw something on Facebook. But categorizing expertise is not always so simple. Farmers, for example, may have a kind of expertise about environmental factors affecting their crops or livestock, even though they may not have formal education or credentials. Also, scholars in the discipline of science, technology, and society may have more expertise, for example, about the conduct of science than actual scientists. In the book, the authors illustrate this with what they label as the periodic table of expertises which is their model for the various types of expertises individuals might use when making judgments. Obviously, since this is a podcast episode, you can't see the table, but I think it will be helpful if I try to summarize it. And this will be a rough summary. The authors go into a lot more detail in the book, so I encourage you to to check it out there. For our purposes, you can imagine two dimensions, top to bottom and left to right. The authors call the complete top row ubiquitous expertises, which is the category of expertise everyone in a society might have. Examples might be fluency in a particular language in that society, or the ability to live and travel about in that society, or folk wisdom, or moral sensibilities. These are all non-trivial skills and repositories of tacit knowledge that are legitimate examples of expertise, though they should not be confused with more specialized levels of expertise that we'll discuss next. So with ubiquitous expertise out of the way, now we start to address more specialized types of expertise. The authors divide the row below ubiquitous expertise into five categories of specialist expertises. From left to right, in order of increasing specialization, we have 1. Beer mat knowledge. 2. Popular understanding. 3. Primary source knowledge. 4. Interactional 
expertise. And five, contributory expertise. Okay, so let's run through these briefly. Beer mat knowledge is the level of expertise one might have if your only knowledge and experience about a topic comes from reading the little information nuggets one might find on a beer mat. Little cardboard coasters you sometimes find in restaurants or pubs that have ads and quotes or factoids similar to the types of knowledge you might find in the game Trivial Pursuit. Popular understanding of science is the level of expertise one might be able to gain from reading popular press books or consuming other media. Primary source knowledge is the level of understanding gained from reading primary sources. In other words, popular press books summarize and put into easily digestible narratives complex discussions contained in the primary sources. So your level of understanding and expertise is thought to be more advanced if you can understand primary sources than if you can only understand popular press summaries. These first three categories of expertise, beer mat knowledge, popular understanding, and primary source knowledge, comprise levels of expertise that the authors call ubiquitous tacit knowledge because these levels of knowledge can be obtained by anyone just through reading. They don't require immersion in the domain of a particular specialization. To learn things about computer science, for example, you can just read some books. But to become a computer scientist, for example, at the PhD research level, you must immerse yourself for years in higher education and within communities of PhD students and faculty all doing computer science research. By taking classes, doing research, writing papers, and making presentations at conferences, it is this immersion in what the authors refer to as a form of life that gives levels of expertise to individuals beyond what can be gained from those first three categories. The last two categories, then, comprise what the authors refer to as specialist tacit knowledge. The authors say interactional expertise is said to be the level of expertise gained where someone might know the language of a particular knowledge domain, but may not be able to contribute new knowledge within that domain. This is actually a new category of knowledge that the authors spend quite a lot of the book developing. But an example of interactional expertise is actually one of the authors, Harry Collins. Harry has some 30 years embedded with physicists researching gravitational waves. To be clear, the physicists were researching gravitational waves, but Harry was researching how the physicists were creating knowledge and doing science. He was performing ethnographic field studies to learn how the physicists do their work. This type of research can only be done by being immersed within the community of physicists. Over time, Harry learned quite a bit about gravitational waves. He's not able to do physics research on gravitational waves, but he did learn the language of gravitational waves, a level of expertise that cannot be learned just from reading the books. In fact, the book Rethinking Expertise walks through an experiment that was performed based on the idea behind what is known as the Turing test. If we jump for a moment back in time, to the field of artificial intelligence. Originally called the imitation game, Alan Turing proposed what is now known as the Turing test as a way to determine whether or not an AI program could be called intelligent. 
if it could think and perform like a human. The basic scenario of the Turing test is the following. A human judge is positioned in front of two test takers. One of the test takers is a human, and one is the AI program. The judge cannot tell which participant is the human and which is the AI. Yet the task of the test is for the judge to identify which is the human and which is the AI. The judge must make their decision based on a series of written questions and answers the judge asks of the human and the AI. In other words, if the AI can fool the judge into thinking the AI is providing human answers, then we can say that the AI can think and is intelligent. So, the book describes how researchers perform their own version of the Turing test. Gravitational wave physicist researchers, acting as judges, were able to ask a number of unknown participants questions about gravitational waves, and the participants were able to submit their answers. Some of the participants were gravitational wave physicist researchers, and some were not. Based on their answers, the judges were to assess who was the gravitational wave researcher and who was not. The interesting part is that Harry Collins was one of these participants, and the judges could not rule him out as a gravitational wave physics researcher. In other words, Harry's interactional expertise in the field of gravitational waves was deep enough that he had learned the language of that form of life, so much so that members of that community could not tell he was not a native. That is what we mean by interactional expertise. Now, with that out of the way, it should be more clear our final category, contributory expertise. This category is what we might traditionally imagine if someone was called an expert, someone with enough knowledge and experience that they are able to create new knowledge in a given field. The gravitational wave physics researchers, for example, have contributory expertise in the gravitational wave domain. Though the authors used a row of their table going from left to right to arrange their expertise categories, they used the analogy of a ladder to illustrate the relationship between those categories. The first rung of the ladder you can step onto is beer mat knowledge. The next rung up is popular understanding, and so on. The latter idea allows the authors to demonstrate the transitive relationship between the categories. If you are on the primary source knowledge rung of the ladder, for example, that means in principle you have popular understanding and beer mat knowledge as well but you don't have expertise of the higher rungs, interactional and contributory expertise. The next row of the periodic table of expertises is that of what the authors call meta-expertise, or the expertise level needed to judge other experts. As with the specialist expertise row, there are five categories of meta-expertises. I won't go into them here, but an example to fix the idea of what we mean by meta-expertise is to consider the wine connoisseur. Wine connoisseurs may not be actual vintners, but they have a cultivated level of expertise to be able to judge wines. Or if you are in academia, you are probably familiar with the idea of a peer reviewer, where your submitted work may be judged by a peer who may not be in your domain of expertise. 
While the book contains a lot more interesting details about the categories of expertise and their relationships with each other, let's circle back to why this is important. Who should be at the table when discussing technical aspects of issues in the public domain? I think the breakdown of the different categories of specialist expertise and meta-expertise help give a model and language for doing this sort of demarcation between those who should be at the table and those who should not. Again, we are concerned with debates about the technical aspects of an issue. If you want your government to have its leaders, those who likely aren't even on the ladder of expertise for science and technology, to just make their decisions like, the best way to treat COVID-19 is to drink bleach, one, that's not a democracy, and two, that's a political decision, not a technical decision. The periodic table of expertise can serve as a way for leaders who actually want a democracy to determine the legitimacy of those who should be included for technical discussions. But of course, this table does not make these sorts of discussions and decisions easy, especially in the public domain. There is more work to be done in the area of better understanding the social use of expertise and experience, especially, in my opinion, for better ways to help the public be able to participate in these sorts of science and technology discussions. If they don't have specialist expertise, for example, the public can still be involved in helping make decisions through meta-expertise, just as the wine connoisseur can help judge wines, even without any sort of specialist expertise in making wine or growing grapes. Similarly, Structures can be developed to help the general public be able to judge between science and technology expert discussions. We currently don't have those structures. We don't have good ways for the public, as well as even scientists and technologists, to participate more broadly in setting science and technology policy. I think the social sciences, as well as those from science, technology, and society, can have a definite role here in helping create those structures. Of course, again, it depends on what sort of society we want to have. But certainly, I think the book, Rethinking Expertise, that we discussed here today, is a good start. And with that, we wrap up Episode 8 of the Techno Slipstream Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to help make sure this podcast stays on the air, consider heading over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles to our Patreon page to sign up. In addition to supporting the show on Patreon, you can sign up to get the show transcripts, including links to the articles and books discussed in each episode. In any case, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.